everyone. This is episode four and it's all about mental health. I'm Catherine. And I'm Andrew. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. Right, Andrew, I know we've got some really, really important things to be discussing today. And whilst we want to keep it obviously serious and not make light of any kind of topics, we do still have our truth or lie um, to go through from the last, uh, last time that we had an episode. And I think I'm going to blow your mind away a little bit, by the way, on the Twitter poll. <laughs> go on. Go we've on. had our highest number of people voting this time. And I'm, I'm really happy we got into double figures. Ten people. 10 people voted as to whether or not which one of us <laughs> was telling a truth or lie. So um, would you like to reveal if you were being um, truthful or lying? please? Uh, so so my, my claim was I have one piercing and, and that is a lie. Um, and unlike you, I don't kind of do half lies. Um, <laughs> so I don't have seven piercings or 10 piercings. I, I, have, <laughs> I have no piercings. So I, I was out and out lying, which I guess means... I'm, I'm being out and out truthful. I have seven tattoos. Wow. And they're all in places where none of you will ever see because the only time you would see them is if I was in a bikini and none of you are ever seeing me in a bikini because <laughs> I would be mortified. So there we go. We're all sorted. <laughs> um, so today is all about mental health. And I'm sure that everybody listening to this is very, very aware that both of us are very passionate about this. I, for anybody who doesn't really know me too well, I've had generalized anxiety disorders since the age of 20, so that's 14 years ago. I had two very, very nasty bouts of agoraphobia. It's interesting to know how many people, so I've been looking at some statistics, and one of the things is that, um, that come through with mind is that it, one in four people will experience a mental health condition each year in the UK. So one in four people. I mean, that's quite a, a high amount of people. And then they've got a few other statistics, which there was the first ones I didn't find like massively shocking in a sense. So it was saying that generalized anxiety disorder, that 5.9 people out of every 100 have it, which it doesn't sound like a lot. But really, when you take us to how many hundreds of people we have in the UK, that is a good amount of people. Depression was 3.3 people per 100. But the one that really, really stood out for me was suicidal thoughts. And that was 20.6 people per 100 people have suicidal thoughts. And I found that really, really quite surprising. So I know suicidal thoughts is something we're going to chat about later. It's quite a contentious issue when it comes to, say, like life insurance applications. That's a pretty significant, that's a fifth of people that should be saying really on these applications that, yeah, I've had a suicidal thought. Yes, yeah, and it's well. I, I think all of that, as you say, that as as someone who who knows and loves people with um, mental uh, health conditions, then those numbers almost instinctively seem low to me. As as with anything, you're in your bubble, and and I think probably both of us are in bubbles where um, we we would expect, if anything, certainly those numbers for anxiety and depression to be higher. Um, I still do the school playground test because I'm not imaginative. Um, and to be clear, that that on average means that you know what one one parent has depression in every class, and a couple, or sorry, yeah, and a couple have anxiety. And you know, as with always, as with the theme of these, being kind and understanding when when you're speaking to those people who you you probably won't know which one it is. Um, is, is a key thing. The suicidal thoughts I know we'll come back to, so I'll, I'll hold fire on that, but I, yeah, I agree. It's, it's an amazingly high number. 
There's a thing as well, because I did um, some mental health first aid training uh, recently with Alan and we did it in York with a person from Mind at York and it was the one that was offered by Mental Health First Aid England. And again, they have some statistics, which I think is something that's going to really come into play a lot more with all the social media and everything else, all the pressures that young people have at the moment. It's going to have quite an impact, I think, when people are starting to go from their insurances, like the next generation start going for the insurances. With them, they had that obviously 26.8% of 16 to 24 year olds have had suicidal thoughts and 18% of students between the ages of 12 and 17 have self-harmed. So that's a fifth of teenagers have self-harmed. And you kind of think, well, at some point there's going to have to be some kind of reaction. I know that means also that four fifths haven't, mm. just in case any underwriters are wondering if I don't realize the other side of it, that there's going to be four fifths of people who don't have that. But it is such a significant amount. And and I think we're seeing more and more that what people are going through and potentially the bullying and the different things and sometimes the glorification of self-harm um, and things on social media, on TV shows, is kind of seeming, it almost is sort of like normalizing it in a lot of places. And I can't think that there's going to be more and more instances where insurers are maybe going to have to be adaptive to and being react, more reactive to how lot long it was or the age that person was when that was happening yeah absolutely and I, I i think almost a first check for insurers is to go and check your stats and see how often people are disclosing those things if you're asking about them on an application form and if as for most the lump the numbers are much lower that then you then you have to kind of challenge yourselves as to why that is and and is that because is that because these people are simply not applying to life insurance? It seems unlikely in the long term. Or is it that people are, I guess, interpreting questions in a different way because we can't possibly mean that or they can't possibly mean that? I think that's, you know, some of that honesty um, about the whole process is, is probably needed to move us forwards in some of this. Because, yes, as, as you get older, then those numbers start to decline and, and in in some instances in some instances um but the rate of disclosure while increasing for mental health is still much lower than any of these kind of independent stats that you get from charities and i think being able to explain that or otherwise risk being told at claim stage that well you knew you know you knew you weren't getting honest answers to these questions and you continued the process is is frankly from a risk perspective why insurers need to treat this seriously there's lots of other reasons why they need to treat this seriously but from a risk perspective there's you know there's potentially a, a, a big underlying issue here well, I want to reflect as well a little bit on us having the mental health conference with Cover last week. It was a lovely to be on panel with you. It was really, really, um, it was quite surreal and actually quite anxious for me to come down to London because I was getting, obviously, we do have the, everything with the coronavirus and we'd planned on staying for two nights, the night before and the night of um, the mental health. And then as soon as the session was over, I have to say, we just immediately packed up and headed home because... I've got three kids, so obviously one of them was with me, but the other two were at home. My dad's ill with Parkinson's. And it, I just had this awful feeling, anxiety, that they were just going to sh shut the walls and the roads to London. Um, so I do apologise that I didn't stay for the full thing, but our session went really well and we've had some lovely feedback. But I think some of them, there were some really good key takeaways from that. And I think one of the big things for me was that everybody there, you know, there was this clear passion and unity to try and be better and support people more. 
and I, that was really really lovely to see yeah i agree i think in it it's a different community um i mean don't get me wrong i guess the 10 the 10 people i always sit with at a conference i still i still sat with at a conference um <laughs> that they go do the circuit um so it's lovely to see johnny and, and other people yeah. um but it is just kind of, I think, where it becomes really interesting is, is those different perspectives, whether it's charities, whether it's some of the other mental health kind of first aider trainers, um, whether it's some of the, I guess, support services or value add services and things like that. Um, looking at the corporate well-being side as well, which, yeah, uh, yeah I, as you know, I, I think that's where you get good ideas from and not, not necessarily a clumsy kind of corporate links up with one of those companies but just in the conversations and in and, and in the stuff in between so i thought it was a really good day um i think personal highlights for me were probably two talks close to our hearts so so, so mental health uk sarah from mental health uk they've done a really interesting survey of um of people who have applied for life insurance with mental health um backgrounds with mental health disclosures and, and some really interesting insights coming out of that. Um, and then almost the other side of the fence was um, uh, Keith Robertson uh, from the Holloway. Who... I think you mean Keith Richardson. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that is a joke yes, for the people yes. who were there. <laughs> um, who, who just, you know, who, who I guess embodied. He was the, amazing. He embodied the every man underwriter, you know, was kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's been around a bit. He's seen a few things. Um, and, and he is that person who sits in the middle of many underwriting teams, unheralded, um, trying trying to do a good job and finding it quite difficult at times, but, but doing his best to find a way through it. And I know from a personal perspective, he shared some of his story um, on the day, yes. but I know within, you know, within Holloway, he has been instrumental in kind of pushing that forward. So it's re really, really good to see him have that opportunity and, and as I say just so powerful when you actually get people who really make change talking yeah. and, and, and opening up rather than it being dare I say it, the typical person three levels up who's kind of being briefed as to what they should say yeah he, he was absolutely the, the presentation he did was brilliant it was mm. perfect level of seriousness with comic timing um, information and as you say the personal aspects of it that he brought to it was just absolutely you know it was it was really really touching and it was really nice because i think we do see it as advisors as well sometimes and i'm not saying this is of keith you know anything before but you know yeah. we do sometimes see it with underwriters where they can sometimes seem like these distant gray kind of walls that aren't listening to anybody or anything <laughs> sorry underwriters but that is kind of what it yeah, feels like yeah, sometimes absolutely. you just feel like a barrier you know it's, it's kind of like the riot police you know kind of coming up it's the underwriters there with the barriers and the batons going no 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 we're not gonna let you pass kind of thing and it's really nice when we do meet an underwriter and you see them there and you as you said before you know underwriters are human too and you are <laughs> you know it's it's nice to see the human behind it and to see that it's not somebody who is deliberately trying not to cover people you know it's you know the, the there is rules that they have to go by but they are also trying really hard to constantly evolve and change things and to you know they're, they're proud of what they what they're doing and they want to make it as best as possible yeah no absolutely and and i think i mean so much of that is culture and i, I think you know anyone in any 
uh, place would, or he's moved um, companies a few times. Would go well at some places. I was more able to be myself than than others, and I definitely think underwriting is quite an extreme example of that. There will be places where you go, and it's you do just have to follow rules, and, and that becomes your job. Um, some, from an underwriting perspective, a willingness from different companies to to try different approaches and to ask different questions. And I think again, an honesty that that it's very unlikely that that they will suddenly have come up with the perfect new set of questions uh, for everyone. Um, and, I, and I guess again, that's that's to be encouraged, albeit that you know you, you want improvement and you want things to get better quickly. Um, I think I think that engagement and that willingness to try and ask different questions, which may be applicable, more applicable. For, even for some clients and others or for some advisors to use and others will, will become probably an increasing theme in this area I think in, in the next couple of years yeah I think so so suicidal thoughts you're going to let me loose with this aren't you Go on. so I will like so for, again for any underwriters or any actors or anybody who's listening I'm possibly going to say some things that you may not like or may make you wince a little bit but there's reasons um so bear with me uh, so obviously we chatted a little bit with Sarah Murphy from Mental Health UK and one of the things that I asked her at the event was basically what is a suicidal thought now this is the thing that is so hard for clients and it's so hard for advisors and it you know it in fairness it may be hard for underwriters too but we don't know because we don't really get kind of that there's just not that kind of transparency about what a suicidal thought is so like I've said to quite a few different underwriters you know what is a suicidal thought and I've never had a clear answer to be honest so it's kind of the thing if I have to say to people and they say well what's a suicidal thought it's like well I have to say, well, I don't really know, to be honest, because is it that, you know, you've seen um, one of the shows, like that 13 Reasons Why show, which is all about suicide. You've watched it and you thought, oh, that's all about suicide. Ooh. And then later on, you're thinking about the show. Well, hang on a minute. Does that mean that you're thinking about suicide because you're thinking about a show about suicide? Is it that you have been, um, and, you know, this has happened to Alan quite a few times when he's coming back from King's Cross. Is it that you've been somewhere and your train's been delayed because unfortunately someone has decided to take the life um, in that sorry, area? And you sort of, you know, I know that it's, it's probably quite natural to think, oh, oh, well, I don't know if, if I was going to do that. I don't know if I'd do it that way. I'd probably, you know, again, is that a suicidal thought? Is it the point where you're sort of going, oh, well, the world would just be better off without me? But then there's different levels of saying that. There's saying that in the sense of I'm frustrated with the world and, you know, everything's getting me down and that's it. And then there's actually it being much, much more of an actual statement. And then there's the people who've had the suicidal thought where they've gone, right, I've got the, um, I've got the paracetamol. I've got my favorite gin. Friday night, I'm doing it. There, there is such a range there of what a suicidal thought is. And the difficulty is, is that it can be such a change as well in what the insurance underwriting will be. So, you know, I mean, especially when it comes to the self-harm and the suicide types of things, I know some insurers, they class them as the same thing. And I have to say, it's incredibly, as an advisor, I find it incredibly insulting sometimes if someone says to me, well, I've been declined because of I've self-harmed and stuff like that. And it's insulting for me to have to say to them, well, I'm really sorry, but it could be, I'm not saying for different, but it could be that some insurers treat a self-harm as the same as a suicide attempt that is a huge difference in between those two things and I, I'll argue for a while with anybody who would like to argue with me um, that 
that is not right at the moment that people are doing that. But I think this, I mean, there's such a huge thing that we can't possibly cover it all in one podcast. But with the suicidal thoughts, with Sarah Murphy, when I asked her, she turned around and said, and it's something I've heard from, um, it was from Karen Lloyd as well, basically said, insurers aren't the thought police. And it's true. I mean, what, in a sense, can you explain to me, because it would really help me, what is a suicidal thought and why is it that it is so, so important in these applications? Um, I can try and I can, you know, in the spirit of this, I can do do, do my very best because I, I recognise all of those issues. To start at the end, insurers aren't the thought police, but disclosure is important. Um, and because otherwise you risk the claim not being paid and, and you know, big and heavy yeah. as it sounds, that's what we're up against here. And I think a common theme is, well, insurers don't know what I'm thinking and they don't today, but if in... Let, let's run a scenario forward where in six months time you you go and someone goes and seeks help and says I've had these thoughts for 12 months um, i.e before the application um, I've never done I've never taken any actions but these thoughts have been going on for 12 months and then another 12 months the worst happens yeah. you commit suicide then you know then probably that claim won't be paid because you've you've misrepresented uh, you've you've lied on your application form, so I think that's that heightens the need to get clarity on what insurers actually yeah. mean when they ask this this question. Um, we've talked before about the importance of answering questions and not not doing anything more or less than that, and I think uh, almost insurers' deal on that is the wording they use must be very carefully considered in order to allow people to do that and to that extent I think you kind of you go through it logically and say insurers have the opportunity to ask have you ever made plans to commit suicide have you ever taken physical steps to do that that's a question I'm much more comfortable with um, from both an evidence perspective and and a way of measuring the severity and I think there are some insurers who have done that, but most insurers, you, you therefore have to conclude, consciously decide to throw the net wider than just that, because they're not yeah. asking that. And, and they're certainly not asking, have you seen a doctor or have you had medical support around this? Um, which does then lead us into this, yeah, very grey area as to uh, I an acknowledgement that anyone listening to this now is thinking about suicide so yeah. you know so, so to all of your examples given add the add that one and say right so if you've listened to this podcast you now have to say yes you now have to say yes to that application question we can't possibly mean that um i would say that a well-structured application would then ask other questions that would reveal the lack of severity should reveal that but as you say i i, I can't hand on heart say that that does that that always happens and and especially in an automated world so so i guess long answer coming to a close it does become back to the exact wording used and and i think you do end up having to take some responsibility um for for saying this is something where you have personally thought about suicide for yourself um, mm. rather than this kind of in the more abstract concept 
I, I, I think I think I have heard, and I guess the consensus ends up being this this mix of saying if you have thought about you know how you would do it, or if you've thought about what physical actions you would take, I think that seems to be this where a lot of underwriters would begin to draw the grey line. Mm. But uh, I, 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 I can't help but thinking we could and should do better bluntly because otherwise it does just leave it's so it's much so uncertainty open. yeah and I think as well sometimes in some ways and I know that probably goes against it you know what I'm saying but you know we can't control our thoughts sometimes you know if you are watching something and if you if you are seeing something you know say if you see someone actually you know do that maybe where they step out in front of some kind of public transport or something and you've witnessed that one you're going to obviously mentally um, obviously needs a lot of support mental health wise um and emotional support but also I, I don't think that you could really i don't think you could ever blame someone for going around and going well i couldn't ever do that and then that would naturally maybe go to well if I was going to it, I'd maybe do, you know, and it's kind of like a natural kind of progression, I think. But I understand, though, that that's not easy for either an underwriter or the person or the advisor or the person applying to handle. But yeah, I do think that at the moment, like you say, I think that thing of maybe saying, have you, you know, have you purposefully taken steps, you know, or thought, have you, have you purposefully planned your own you know, suicide in a sense, or how to, how you plan on taking your own life, then that's different. It's still the thoughts; they've not necessarily gone through it. But it does just feel like it could be at yeah. the moment. It just does seem a bit too much of a catch-all. It kind of feels like it's deliberately catching as many people as possible. Yeah, and the challenge. So, so there is data that links suicidal ideation. Uh, I never yeah. shouted that ideation. Um, which in essence is the grand word for suicidal thoughts with an increased chance of suicide. And that makes sense. Um, but yes. it still doesn't help you understand when people answer that question, where on the spectrum they were, what had caused those, etc. And And still, as you say, the, the, I do think this is one where mental health is different, um, where, and, and this kind of throw the net wide, you then... You then, even if even if then the next three questions you ask are very reasonable, because potentially the next question could be, you know, have you only thought about it when listening to podcasts, when waiting for, you know, you, you could try and then kind of build it back up from there to, to become more inclusive. But yeah. A, that's not what people do. <laughs> that's not honestly what insurers are doing today. Yeah. Um, and B, it would be a very odd and intrusive way to go about it. So 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 for me insurers need to look harder to try and change i think this is one where probably you and i need to call out catherine you've we we you, we have tried to engage people on this both publicly yeah. and privately and struggle. absolutely and i think that probably does say that actually uh, people are kind of doing their head in sand a bit on it and going well it's not it's not right it's not perfect but as we can't think of anything better we'll keep leaving it to the advisors and the customer to yeah. deal with rather than us and that's not that's not right I think a big thing would be engaging with charities I have to say you know I, I think there's so many consultations and everything that are done kind of within our industry and I know there's a lot of stuff going outside to different people as well but you know really sitting down with you know lots of different mental health organizations and saying right 
tell us what we need to do you know that would really help and I have to say I'm going to be I need to do this for fairness as well is that I have spoken to many underwriters who've been absolutely incredible with mental health and they have sat and they've listened and you know there's somewhere you know just like say look it, it you know there's just this puts it way out of our acceptance it's just a case of okay you know we've tried and thank but you know they've took the time to listen to the person and and i've said that i do have some you know really really incredible conversations with people where they are supportive yeah i think i guess for me on that catherine it is the theme though of going you know overall and we both acknowledge this right i guess anyone who's trying to move things forward does that in the short term there are there are heroes throughout and whether that's heroic advisors as many at cura will be on these cases or underwriters but yeah who win awards but, at the cii yeah, what was yeah. it the other day yeah fundamentally we shouldn't need heroes in this and and, and so often where these wordings where question word i think there's a it's shifting the focus right from outcomes to actually what's how you've got there and it would have turned so many people off along the way um either to not complete the application or you know or or to then not take up the policy because maybe they didn't quite answer it as they maybe should have and they know that but they don't want to tell the advisor so i think i think kind of giving ourselves hats on the back either for high acceptance rates or for, oh, but there's this great case where we went extra and did this, kind of misses the point on this on this specifically yes. for me. I, I know it, you're trying. No, 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 it does. No, it's, you know, it should be for everybody, but, you know, it's just for the time being, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're slowly, I think, making those changes. But another thing in regards, again, though, to suicide, so it's slightly different. So I'm going to just mention one more thing on suicide, and then I was going to go on to vulnerable um, customer policies and mm. um, just potentially some tips to give out to um, to other organisations as well. I'm not saying that ours is perfect, but I put it together, so it's pretty good. <laughs> um, <laughs> So the other one is that the thing is that they have you tried to commit suicide. And it was something that just popped into my head. We were on panel last week and it just sort of stood out for me. You know, we were saying, you know, we need to ask if people have tried to commit suicide if they want life insurance. And, you know, I imagine that there's maybe some people who say, no, not if it's after a certain amount of time. I'm kind of in that thing of thinking, well, actually, if I was the insurer, I'd want to know that, you know, kind of thing. So I get why they're asking. And I'm not advocating for advisors to start sort of like going out and asking all these additional questions. But part of my process, obviously in the specialist, the way that I do it, is that it's there's a very, very different set. You know, getting somebody, getting insurer to consider somebody who's had a suicide attempt is one thing. But that is just one thing. There's so much more to the suicide attempt than just that. So, you know, we all know if you say, you've had a suicide attempt then immediately that application is going to be going for a doctor's report there's no other way about it in a sense at the moment and so basically you could put anything else and the rest of it everything else could be absolutely no that is going to go for um, a gp report but then the problem is is that's not all the information that you need to be able to give your clients an accurate quotation and to do your research so one of the big things is obviously a trigger now, this is very, very difficult and a very sensitive thing to um, bring up with somebody when you're speaking to them because they may not be in a position to be able to talk about the trigger mm-hmm. um, or they may be. And then you may find that it actually triggers something in yourself. It depends on how open they are, whether or not it's something that you've experienced yourself or sometimes potentially how detailed they go into the information. It can be very, very harrowing, some of the things that you can hear. Um, The other thing is the method of how they try to harm themselves. So insurers, as I believe it's right for me to say, that some insurers um, class suicides in a sense as one thing, but then there's violent suicides 
that take it all into a completely different ball game when it comes to the underwriting side of things. I believe you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong. So it's very important to know the method. So if somebody has, in a sense, if you've got somebody who has um, decided to take some tablets, that's treated differently um, than somebody who's maybe decided to um, do more of like a physical self-harm, what we would class something as violently and, and obviously not wanting to do anything kind of um, trigger anybody who's listening, but it'd be somebody who's maybe tried to hang themselves or possibly cut themselves and um, tried to commit suicide that way. Now, so it's quite hard because I wouldn't advocate advisors to suddenly start going off and willy-nilly asking this of people and adding that onto the question set when they're doing these applications. But it's really hard because we're still in these applications. I don't know what the answer is, but we're only capturing like a third of the information we need. We need to know that the method that they used and the trigger for it before we can actually still know whether or not that client's going to be able to go forward with that insurer because that insurer may be able to accept somebody who's had a suicide attempt but then by the time they've got the GP report, if it's been a violent attempt, if the trigger was something that they don't necessarily think was a significant trigger, maybe, um, then that could be that person's out, you know, and they've got maybe gone months down the line for a GP report. And then you've got somebody who, rightly so, has had previous suicide attempts being told, well, we're not going to insure you for life insurance which is inherently because you think they're a higher suicide risk and that could potentially be triggering to that person. And I know that there's no answer to it and I've no idea what you're going to take from that, Andrew. Um, I don't even think there's anything. I'm just kind of going off on one here. No, and no, no, I, say, you know, it's, it's so hard for ev everybody involved. It's so hard. Yeah, I think, I think the, two most, the two most important things for underwriters about if we're talking about suicide attempts specifically, are how many suicide attempts the person has had um, and when the last one was. But as you've described there, there are a whole load of other factors that then kick in. And, and I mean, on, on those two most important, I think it's pretty obvious that um, yeah. yeah, longer ago is better and only one is a lot better than two or more. Um, yeah. and, and, and then you kind of, then you build a picture around that. I think I think all the rest that you've said is kind of encapsulates this challenge that underwriters have in going, well, do I want to do I want to force the advisor to ask these extra questions when potentially I'm not going to be able to get them cover anyway? And depending on the advisor and the relationship and so on, then then there may be, again, there may it may be exactly the right person to have that conversation yeah. or exactly the wrong person to have that conversation. Um, we, but, and I think therefore that's, that's kind of why you end up with this. Unlike frankly, for probably more physical conditions, let's say diabetes, where there's kind of a, Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll throw We'll ask as many questions as we can think of that could possibly be useful mm. where lots of insurers would be to hear where it's, well, we'll, We'll, we'll stop asking once we've got that core information and then we'll, you know, don't, don't you worry yourself about it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of where the group thinks taken us to. And, and I think it's hopefully that gives a, you know, a, some explanation as to why, but what it doesn't do is help out for, for the many people, whether it's advisors or applicants, customers who go, well, actually I'm, yeah, I'm quite comfortable talking about this. You know, I've got good understanding of it. I'd rather tell you it than, again, than have someone else tell you about it. Obviously, you can go and check that. 
But um, yeah, I think those those questions you've gone down would be valid. And again, I guess for insurers almost to produce their own, I guess, best advice questions where there is that good relationship yes. or good understanding would definitely be helpful. Um, and I, I, I suspect that they're not really out there at the moment other than in a scrawled on post-it notes in, in advisor offices across the land from, from some of those more helpful underwriters within teams. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about now is the vulnerable client um, customer policy. So just as an idea, because I know some people will be listening to this and there'll be plenty of advisors who are doing very, very well supporting people with mental health conditions. But I know that there'll be some who aren't massively sure what to do. So we put in a process in Cura and it actually we got quite a lot of inspiration because we visited Red Arc nurses last um, summer. Um, we went over in the summertime. It was lovely. We went into their offices and they had this brilliant system where I can't remember the exact reason that they used it for, but they had basically these little red flags on everyone's desk. And if there was a problem, they would, you know, they'd wave the little red flag and the others would know to support. And we thought that this was a, a brilliant idea. So what I did is I built a, a customer, a vulnerable, vulnerable customer policy kind of system in, in, within Cura. And we are very much a technological company, so there's a lot of it is kind of automated as well. But basically, everyone at work now has a red flag on their desk. And there has been incredible warnings if they are used in any way other than what they are intended to be used for. So essentially, what it is, is that anybody that's admin, it's, you know, advisors, it's managers, it's anybody. If they are on the phone and they think that a customer is potentially at risk to themselves or others, they simply raise their arm with a red flag and wave it. We're in an open plan office, so this works for us. At this point, everybody who's not engaged, say on the phone, immediately stops what they are doing and pays full attention to that employee. Um, what we would then do is we have an internal messaging system. At that point, um, managers would immediately, and everyone else needs to monitor as well, we immediately contact that person through the messaging system to find out what's going on. Is it that they um, think that the person's at risk of self-harm, they're, they're saying that they're going to harm others, so that we can provide some initial guidance and that person that can then be, you know, in a sense, we can try and talk to them to say, are you happy to speak to a mental health first aider that we have? Are we, you know, are, we, are you prepared for us to at some point, if you think that there's a significant um, situation going on, you can start to progress to sort of like say, do you have somebody nearby? Um, do you have a family or friend we can contact for you? Can we potentially contact your GP? And in very, very extreme circumstances, it potentially calling um, the uh, sort of like the ambulance services. So with all that's happening, there's also another thing aspect to that is that um, as well as that, anybody who sort of contacts and has that situation, there's like kind of like automated systems where the, you know, whoever's on, in contact with them can press a button on their computer and immediately sends, in a sense, a, a message to the managers so that we know to go in to sort of like listen to call recordings, to find out what's going on, to record everything down so that we can say, right, well, this is what's happening. This is how we followed things up to make sure that that person is getting the support that they need. There's another aspect to it though as well. So people in our team can also use the red flag if they themselves are struggling. So if they've been on a phone call that has been maybe triggering for themselves, they've maybe heard things that are just far, far too upsetting and um, or the person that we've spoken to has gotten very upset because of the conversation and um, it's just been hard for them emotionally to support the person. And again, they can raise the red flag. Again, we all do that thing of stopping 
and it could just be that they message us all and say i need a cuppa and a cuddle after the end of this phone call at which point we're all ready you know it'll be there ready for them and you know we can go and we've also got support systems and follow-up systems for them to have some specific dedicated support um to help them through anything that they've um, that they've experienced so I think that's kind of a, it's a good way, I think, at least as a starting point, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's a good starting point to have in place, you know, have the systems, you know, have processes in place within your internal systems to, in a sense, flag if you think that somebody is potentially at risk. Um, and that's not just the case as well, so, you know, sort of like people who are maybe, um, you know, people who are outwardly you know sort of like saying to you something that you think that they are at risk of self-harm to themselves or to others it could be that you think that um the person is um maybe not comprehending what you're saying properly um if you think they may be sounding a bit confused maybe sort of like more significantly agitated not following the conversation um it could be you know if somebody even indicates to you that they may be quite an impulsive compulsive person and that they sort of like get their mind into something and then they just must have it immediately. It could be that they are maybe sort of like more of like a compulsive buyer. So you need to be careful as well in that kind of a situation. Um, so have that kind of system in place in your internal systems, but then have something as well where it's easy for team members to be able to signal to each other that something isn't right and that they can then you know, carry on, you can contact them and carry them easily without it maybe being obvious to the person who's maybe on the other end of the phone or the person who's also, who, who is there in person so that they can try and keep that conversation going and keep everything as calm as possible. Um, but I think that they're, they're sort of like my main tips, initial tips anyway, for anybody. And please, if I've said anything wrong, anybody from any mental health charity or anything like that listening, please do let me know if you, if, if anything I've said is wrong, and I will correct this on a, a later podcast. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think just to give it a scale. Um, so last summer, I did a survey with Protection Review um, for a session that you chaired, Catherine, um, and help promote. But just, just one, just let me just kind of find this one, one question and answer specifically on that. So, so we asked advisors and insurers, but but looking at advisors, we asked advisors, in what proportion of cases has a person responsible for communicating a decision around mental health had appropriate training with regards to managing potentially sensitive areas around mental health, and for advisors the answers were um never 27 percent sometimes 37 percent mostly 27 percent and always eight percent so i know that's a lot of numbers and a lot of words but yeah suffice to say only an eight percent of advisors would say that someone talking about a decision in this instance around mental health would would the advisor always ha have had training which kind of feels I'm trying to find a polite word for it and I and obviously you know much of today's been focused on on underwriters and finding the right words but I, I just I mean there's responsibility with advisors as well yeah, you know we need and, to make sure the advisors are trained well there's responsibility for the advisors in terms of how that customer feels um but and and but equally for whoever is running that advice firm that you know if you're putting people if you're asking your employees or, or whatever the setup is to to kind of have that call with someone to potentially go back and you know go through the at a distance conversations you and I have had today about suicide and suicidal attempts and things like that yeah but with someone who's actually got their own story to tell 
I, I, I just think it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's a bordering on negligence to put someone in that position. Um, and, and, you know, I think you need to be very aware of the potential consequences of, of doing that. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And I would say in, in completely agree with that. I would also say advisors could be supported more with insurers if they didn't send out decline letters. Yes. That said, you've been declined because of your mental health history or previously you've been declined because you've had cancer. It's just like, wow, yeah. slap in the face. Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. You know, that just doesn't help a situation at all. And it actually makes it seem, and I know, and I know so many insurers and I know the people that were so lovely, but it's stuff like that. It's those letters that don't help that kind of negative perception that people have where they basically they think of insurers purely as businesses. You either suit them or you don't. And if, they, if you don't suit them, then they're just going to cut the losses with you. Yeah. Um, so so I do have a case study, but have you got other stuff that you want no, to let's let, No, let's move on to case. I guess just to flag at this point. So, I mean, it won't surprise anyone who knows us to know Catherine and I will keep coming back to the theme of mental health. And the plan is in future podcasts to to do that. I guess today we've ended up focusing on suicide attempts. And I think that is a, a, a good kind of single subject to talk about so we'll do a couple of case studies on that but just to flag there's obviously loads of other um areas issues challenges within mental health as a whole um and, and we will come back to those so if you have specific if you want to sort of direct us towards the next time we come back to this any questions you have on the, that broader subject please do get in touch in, through the usual ways absolutely yes there is um it's, it's kind of an endless mm. amount of mental health conditions really to, well, it's, to discuss it's like them. trying to do a podcast on physical health right or yeah yeah absolutely um so but, but yeah go on let's do case let's do a couple of case studies so so my case study is one that um, i'm incredibly proud of and this is one where our team member so alan's executive assistant victoria she won the latest legal and general hero in the middle award for this one so basically we had a woman that had come to us. She had a history of eating disorders, alcoholism, and that had caused her a bit of liver cirrhosis and a suicide attempt. Now, she'd come to us, and this had been, she'd been teetotal for nine years, and she'd been declined before seeing us, and we were seeing quite a lot of declines with the insurers that we were approaching as well. And in all fairness, on the face of it, I'm sure most people have just heard those things I've said and probably thought, that's going to be a difficult one to get, you know, get arranged. And it, it really, really was. But something that Victoria, she took that time to listen to her and to really go through everything. And something that just absolutely got Victoria by the heartstrings was that basically this woman, her suicide attempt had been because her children had been kidnapped. Now, I don't know how I would react if my children were kidnapped. I'm pretty sure... I'm going to say, I'm pretty sure I'd go batshit crazy. Let's just put it that way. You know, I would absolutely flip and I would, I'm the kind of person where I would tear down everybody's front doors everywhere that I could go to find them. I think that would be my reaction. Mm. But I've touched wood. I've not been anywhere near that situation. And I can't, you know, I, I can't possibly rule out that that would be my reaction you know it would be I, I really don't know and it's, it's I can't even think about it let's just I just can't even think about it and so it just really got to Victoria and she just basically said she goes I'm not having this I'm not having this at all and 
what we'd ended up finding out was she so she you know obviously she scoured through this lady's medical reports and everything and she'd found out that basically with the liver cirrhosis that was the thing that was causing the massive issue actually and uh, there'd been no follow-up scans to show that her liver had returned to normal so she she spoke to the insurers and she basically said look the suicide attempt you tell me that you could say without a shadow of a doubt in an extreme circumstance that you wouldn't do that and also you tell me that it's feasible that she would be in that situation again how about if we and obviously she basically said so with all that to the side and the fact that she's not had this follow-up on her liver if we get her to get a follow-up on her liver and it's all fine will you look at it and amazingly yes an insurer turned around and said you know what actually yeah we can't you know in that situation you can't hold really anyone to account for what they do in many ways and so we managed it took a few months but we managed to get her to have another ct scan and her liver was normal and so we went from we went from declines everywhere to a 100 150% increase in the life insurance premium so that means again for anybody who's not familiar with those kinds of ratings just in case you don't have them quite often is if you take the base premium and generally, if you take the base premium and times it by 2.5, that will be your 150% increase on the monthly premium. There's things that with plan fees as well, but we won't go into that. But um, but that is our sort of like one of well, our most probably recent shining example. And I really wanted to to sort of like get Victoria's achievement out there with that as well, because it was incredible what she and how obviously she spoke to this lady a lot and she talked through the situations she had been in and um victoria is currently 20 weeks pregnant now and uh, it just it absolutely um it floored her and it mm. was i think there was plenty of times that she had a little cry over that one as well at just what that woman had been through but um but yes that's my case study for it so even though you may be getting declines everywhere sometimes as i've said plenty of times before with different people there's sometimes something hidden in the gp report that can be causing that and um it's, don't always assume that they are absolutely never going to be able to get the cover sometimes it just needs a bit more digging yeah and um i'm going to go off piste here briefly so so i think so rather than doing a case study i maybe it's time to talk about extra mortalities and per mills because for suicide and mental health this is where you'll sometimes find very similar cases get very very different ratings very very different premiums charged sorry which can be confusing to advisors and end customers. So, so just listening as you're going through that case, Catherine, obviously the, the first decision an underwriter has to make is, is it a decline or is it, or can we accept it? The second is, well, if we're gonna accept it, then, then what's the right premium to charge? And there's two entirely different ways an underwriter can go about that. One is the extra mortality, which is just very well described, Catherine, which is in essence kind of, um, adds adds to that premium with, that was based on the age of the person uh, so yeah. that's extra mortality uh, whereas per mil ratings are based on on the sum assured and in essence so the per mil should be applied where the increase in risk is not related to the age of the applicant um, yeah. so the fact that they are 45 rather than 25 makes no difference um, so your offshore so, workers would be a really good example. Yeah, there, absolutely. Right? So traditionally, mainly used for occupations and things. Suicide historically would always have been, suicide attempts would always have been one where you'd say this is independent of um, of age. So, you know, it, it, it comes back to this, the primary things that go into ratings around recent suicide attempts are when it was and 
and have you only had one but but what you can see kind of is this flip between but almost what's the more important thing what's going on here are we are we is the underwriter mainly assessing the suicide risk or are they assessing the overall depression or, or anxiety or, or whatever the mental health disorder is um it, it as i say it it does mean in practice you sometimes get wildly different decisions coming out, which I think almost comes as a surprise to an underwriter as much as anything, because the underwriters, the underwriter, and this is a problem in in uh, modern day underwriting, says says old man Wibberley, um, <laughs> that, that you kind of the underwriter, the last thing they see of the decision is this is seven per mil for five years, which mm. means nothing. None of those numbers are very big um but potentially you know goes and puts on 140 pounds a month to the premium whereas the the plus 100 might put on 10 pounds a month to their premium so you suddenly get wildly different decisions um so i think that's just pretty unique to these kind of case studies in these kind of areas as i say when we talk like occupations they're all per mil when we talk most medical conditions they're all extra mortality but along with the whole issue we have in society around mental health and, and and the focus on it it is this i guess odd place within underwriting as well where you have that extra bit of confusion so probably worth just pulling out and again i'm sure we'll, we'll come up with other examples in in future podcasts of, of some some other things like that yeah and are you going to be testing me on a case study? Was that where you? No, I'm not. I'm going to leave that one. Looking at what we've ended up talking about, um, I think that's more at the, I guess, more minor end of stuff. Okay. Um, so I'm going to leave. Is that, that like mental health podcast, podcast two? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I'll leave that. Okay. Well, we're going towards the end of the podcast. Um, so one of the things that we both want to talk about as well is the whole thing around coronavirus right now. So there are, I imagine, I think there's a lot of people with some heightened anxiety at the moment with coronavirus, and we are seeing that quite a bit as well at Acura. So a lot of the time people are starting to try and contact us about income protection. And I think there's quite a few things about the income protection that need to sorry, be made clear a little bit. And it's it is horrible as an advisor because people are coming to us and wanting, in a sense, what's known more sort of like a continuation of business kind of insurance. So they're basically saying, I'm not worried about getting coronavirus. Um, however, if, um, you know, if my work hours reduce, um, can I get some kind of income protection for me not working as many hours? And it's really hard and you feel horrible because we're having to say to people, well, I'm sorry, that's not what it does. I can give you something that will help you if you get coronavirus. But people are so worried about this lack of hours and rightly so. We've had quite a few um, airline pilots um, contacting us. We've had quite a few medical professionals of so people who may be self-employed but are hired into the NHS. Um, they're getting quite concerned because obviously for them especially, if there's any kind of symptoms, they're being told to self-isolate and potentially for even longer than other people from, from what I'm hearing when I'm speaking to people and um, potentially even longer because there's just the absolute risk of they cannot be anywhere near other people so it's really it's just really really hard at the moment because people are really wanting insurances and it doesn't feel right I have to say to sort of turn on someone and go oh well I'm sorry that's not going to you know obviously the income protection isn't going to do what you want to do however 
you probably do need life insurance. Have you thought about that? You know, there isn't just that natural kind of flow of things. And I think it's really important, as I'm sure that the advisors who are listening to us, um, I'm sure that the ones that listen to us are actually going to be thinking, are, are doing exactly what needs to be done and really being very, very clear with people as to what it does and doesn't cover. There's also been that very quick reaction by a lot of um, income protection providers where they are now putting on either full coronavirus exclusions or at least partial ones for the time being, possibly likely to become full ones, probably imminently in a sense. Uh, I think some people may, not everybody, but I think some people may think that's quite harsh of them, Andrew. I, I mean, I understand it from a business point of view, but can you sort of maybe explain for people from a business point of view why these exclusions right now, while people are kind of en masse wanting the insurances, um, make sense from a business point, an insurer point of view? Yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, I understand. On the one hand, this is the moment for the insurance industry to step forward and say, this is what we do. You know, this is exactly what we do. Um, and I think people are doing that where there are claims on for existing policyholders or members in the case of mutuals. Um, the complicating factor there is around self-isolation and, and kind of the halfway house of some government advice and recognising it's changing every day. But I think, I think um, every provider that I've seen is very clear that if, if there's a valid claim for coronavirus on an existing policyholder, it will be treated in exactly the same way as an existing claim for any other condition. Yeah, as you say, Catherine, the for new policyholders or members, there are an increasing number of insurers who are putting exclusions on. And that really is just down to the fact that this kind of en masse anti-selection and risk of early lapse after so risk of someone taking out a policy for 25 years but only having it for one is is just too great to ignore um so i think so far all of the exclusions i've seen are quite tightly worded um and so everyone would still be able to claim for other medical conditions for example um and and and, and that kind of thing but Frankly, this is absolutely a case for advice and a case for speaking to someone who knows what they're talking about at that moment on that day for your circumstances. Um, and, and I, you know, that, that's not a plug just for you and people. Like you. <laughs> if, if there was, you know, if there was to, if if there was a case study as to when and why, then then I think this pretty much must be it. Yeah, I was going to say the the guidance in regards to the coronavirus and income protection providers, it's changing almost, I think probably almost every few hours or so. It's it's completely... Um, I won't, yeah, I think I won't yeah. name check it because it will reveal yeah. when we're recording this, but I think another one, I think another one's come through in the last sort of half hour. So, so yeah, it, it, I think so. And, and it will. And the, I think the confident yeah. thing we can say is it will continue to change. Um, yes. But, yeah. I think as well, there's going to be, um, from recent things I'm hearing as well, there seems to be, because um, it's not just previously, it was just um, more sort of the shorter deferred periods. So maybe the providers who offer maybe a one day or one week deferment. So that is the amount of time you need to wait. 
from being ill and unable to work before the claim kind of kicks in. And that's now being extended with some insurers to even include four week and eight week options and some recent kind of um, chatter that I'm hearing. So not saying for definite, but some recent chatter that I'm hearing is that some occupations are now being declined um, access to the insurances. So it's, it is really important for people to just be um, really reactive and um, to, to not obviously get frustrated with any advisors when we're trying to stuff like give advice <laughs> and, um, and for advisors not to get frustrated too much with underwriters, I say too much, a little bit maybe, but too much with underwriters um, because we are, we are in completely unprecedented times and I think everybody is scared and um, we, we just, none of us know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't think anybody has any idea what's going to happen to the economy for any no. country in this world right now. And, you know, we're all going to have to make some kind of adaptations and it's just trying to figure out how we can do it as smoothly as possible. Yeah. And again, I think, I guess sticking, I'm wary of going away from insurance because I've just become another anxious human being. Um, but, but I think within insurance as well, the other thing to flag is, uh, GP reports which wouldn't just be for income protection for life critical illness and, and which are still obtained on a minority of cases it is reasonable to assume uh, that those are going to take longer to get back um, at the moment given pressures on on staff and that no one um, is going to pretend that, that getting a GP report back is more important I would hope that insurers um, find ways to to kind of get around uh, you know and, and get around that even more than they have already tried to but i think that's kind of almost probably in a second wave um as as we get over this initial how do we how do we bring fence the risk um yeah. and and then i think you know i i'd hope that it, it, sort of in 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 the weeks and, and dare i say in months ahead the insurers can have the time to to, to consider things like that absolutely well, everybody, we're getting towards the end of the show now. We usually do a truth or lie feature, but to be honest, with the seriousness of the topic and we knew how much we were probably going to go over time um, because we have both have a lot to say on this, uh, we decided not to do it on this episode. Uh, it just didn't feel right. But uh, thank you all for listening. And I am thrilled to say that the next episode, if all goes to plan and the coronavirus behaves itself for a little bit longer, we will feature a mystery guest. And we really hope that you found this useful. If you do have any questions or if you want to ask us any more about any stuff like certain things we've mentioned in this, please do send us a message. Yeah, so we'll be back in two weeks. And if you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do uh, drop us a line. Uh, the plan is to talk about access to insurance, as Catherine's teased with a uh, special guest from outside the industry. Uh, so, yeah, please do drop us a social uh, message on social media or visit our website, which is www.practical-protection.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening um, and speak soon. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye.